Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, this is Everything Else, the FT Culture Podcast. I'm Grizz, Commissioning Arts Editor. Coming up on today's show, I'll be joined by the leading Black Lives Matter activist, DeRay McKesson, whose book, On the Other Side of Freedom, Race and Justice in a Divided America, has just been published. And later on, I'll be joined by my colleague, the writer India Ross, and by our boss, FT Weekend editor, Alec Russell. We'll be discussing Game of Thrones, why we should care about it, and what its legacy might be in the changing landscape of TV. So police violence against the black community, particularly in the US, has been high on the news agenda in recent years. When I was doing research for this podcast, um, I didn't realise that the American police kill around 1,200 people a year, which is a staggering number, and a disproportionate number of those people are African-American. The Black Lives Matter movement sprang up almost five years ago now in order to draw attention to and to counteract this kind of violence. And DeRay McKesson is one of the most prominent members of the movement. He's got one million followers on Twitter, one of whom is Beyonce, who of course only follows 10 people. He's also the host of the podcast, Pod Save America, and now the author of a book, which is called On the Other Side of Freedom. But DeRay wasn't actually always an activist. Until 2014, he'd worked with children, first as a teacher and then as a high school administrator. But on the 9th of August that year... The 18-year-old Michael Brown was shot and killed by a police officer in Ferguson and protests started to build in the streets. DeRay joins me now. DeRay McKesson, thank you so much for coming on Everything Else. It's so good to be here. I want to go back to the moment when you decided to join the protests in Ferguson. It was August 2014. You were at home in Minneapolis watching CNN can you describe for me the moment when you decided to get up, get in your car, drive for nine hours and join in what was happening there? Yes, I was sitting on the couch and I, my best friend is a guy named Donnie. He lives in Chicago and we have been friends for a while. And I knew I shouldn't drive across the country and not tell anybody. Like that sort of seemed like a bad idea. So it was like, who can I call and ask? But it was the middle of the night and like he had just gotten married and Part of our deal, right, was that I wouldn't call in the middle of the night. Like, you just got, when he was single, I was like, I'll call whenever I want to. I don't care if I wake you up because, like, what are you doing? You don't do anything. <laughs> but then he was married and I was like, okay, I can't call at like two o'clock in the morning unless I'm like dying and I'm not dying. So I literally wait till like 7 55. You know, I wait till it's an acceptable time in the morning. I call. He's like, hey, what's up? It's like a weekend. And I'm like, I think I'm going to go to Ferguson. Like, what do you think? And he was like, if you think you should go, you should go. By then I had already packed, you know, I was like ready to go. So I like went and that was it. But it was this thing about I'd had this value of working for kids and like believing in kids. And then they killed my friend who was a teenager. And it was like the least I can do is go. And I went. And the second night I was in St. Louis was the first night that I was tear gassed. And I was like, this is wild. Wow. So can you describe to me a bit the atmosphere of being in the protests, what it felt like? 
the first night was raining, so the protests still continued, but it was just different. Second night, it was not raining. And uh, what I saw was like a lot of people self-organizing. I saw a structure in the midst of chaos. Um, it's important to remember that there were so many of us, right? It was mm. like a lot of people came out every night, uh, and I'm proud to have been one of, one of many people. The beginning was a little different. So in the beginning, it was a lot of people trying to figure out like what to do and how to keep us moving. So it was illegal to stand still in August, September, and October 2014. If we stood still for more than five seconds, we were arrested. So that was its own complicating factor. because It was actually illegal. The police like made up this rule right, and they enforced it, right. and it, they enforced it as if it was true. Uh, so for three months, it was like a lot of moving. So it took like you know, so there'd be people who like would literally just bring crates of water. There'd be people order like twenty pizzas to a corner, and then all of a sudden Domino's would like bring pizza, and you're like, where did the pizza come from? It's like people were just trying to help out, you know. <laughs> mm. It's like so that was the beginning because we sort of were in one space. And then after the no indictment, in some ways the protests just spread all across the region, like the St. Louis city, St. Louis County. Yes, I want to I want to ask you about that. When you say the no indictment, you're talking about Darren Wilson, who was the police officer who shot Michael Brown. And it seemed, at least watching from afar online, that the nature of the protests really changed at that moment when we learned that he wasn't going to face criminal indictment. Can you describe that change and how it felt on the ground? Yeah, so it changed right before, too, because we, mm-hmm. had, we had started to get, like, rumors of when the no indictment decision was going to happen. And we knew that when the decision happened, it was going to be a big deal. And people wanted to be prepared. So it was like, really, you know, I do remember that it was so antsy leading up to the note indictment because we just didn't know what was going to happen. It was like there were like safe houses people set up. There was like food stockpile places. There was all there were all these plans that got put in place for when the decision happened, where we were going to be, who was going to be where. That was actually like really intense. It was just like a lot, super antsy. Then the night happens. Everything's wild. The police cars burning, as you saw, like. And the police were really intense. The protests, everything was intense. So what, when you say the police were really intense, can you can you tell me what that was exactly? The thing about the region is that there wasn't like one big police department in, in St. Louis County. It was all the small police departments sort of formed one police department. So they didn't really know what they were doing. And they were like all coming together for the first time. So you'd like be in one strip and then like one police department would be like, you can't walk here. And you're like, okay. The next police department would be like, you can't walk where they just told you you can walk. And you're like, okay. So not mm. only were the police just aggressive, but they like also were very uncoordinated in the beginning. So it's like, you didn't know if you were going to get arrested or like they, if they were going to shoot rubber bullets today or if they were going to shoot tear gas. You, you literally just like didn't know if you could walk on the sidewalk or not the sidewalk, whether you had to walk in the street or not. And remember that the police killed not only Mike Brown, but they killed 10 people in the region right after Mike Brown. They killed Kazim Powell nine days after they killed Mike Brown. So it was really intense, just like all of it. And something that you say in the book is that what the, the story being told on Twitter and the story being told on TV um, were basically two different stories. And you write that, in no uncertain terms, Twitter saved our lives. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, Missouri would have tried to convince you that we literally didn't exist. So if it was up to them, Missouri would have been like, some it's like some kids outside throwing rocks. Like that would have been the narrative that they told. It wasn't until you could see for yourself, right, that you could like hear the narratives from us that that suddenly you were like, okay, I get it, you know? Like, I, I'll never get one night the police chief who is gone now, but Chief Dotson um, said that, like, people threw rocks at him. And you're like, Dotson, if somebody threw rocks at you, y'all just shot us all. You know, like, nobody hit you with rocks. But it, So they were lying, essentially. Totally lying. But because, like, we could respond in real time, it, we were able to neuter those sort of things. It also allowed us to document their brutality in ways that we just hadn't been able to before. So I remember one night... 
there were people locking arms outside of a gas station and um, the police literally, as they were locked on, they were sitting down. The police came in, put their batons between their arms and started stepping down to try and break their arms if they mm-hmm. didn't unlink. And it's those sort of things that like we could describe to people and they'd be like, you're being dramatic. I can't believe. And you're like, nope, that happened. We did a sit-in in the St. Louis Police Department and we wouldn't get up in um, St. Louis City Police Department. And one of the police officers put his thumb behind like a girl's ear to hit her, pre- her pressure point just so she'd scream, you know? Mm. And like, we have video of it. So when the police are like, oh, we never did anything, it's like, no, 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 we literally have footage of you doing that, you know? So I want to fast forward a bit to 2016. Um, by this time, you're one of the most prominent people in Black Lives Matter movement. And then you were arrested at a protest. In Louisiana. At Baton Rouge. Can you tell me what happened? I was working at the school system at the time. And one of my deals with the superintendent, I told her I was going to like lay low. I was not making waves so So you were working in the school system and doing all your activist work as well yeah so i get to baton rouge i'm exhausted it was like a hard week at work and i'm pretty low-key you know i'm like i'm helping to like document what was happening for people right in in addition to like being in the street i was like trying to tell this narrative about what was happening so you're literally just live tweeting yep and like the police were wild there like they were just so aggressive the people in baton rouge were not aggressive they were they like wanted to be outside to show that they care but they weren't like actively shutting all these things down like they just weren't doing that and the police so you would have thought that these people had like bombs built around the city I mean, it was like really intense the police would come out and just provoke people and arrest them and da, da, da. so i was taking pictures and, and videoing all this stuff and then there was a call to shut down the highway so i followed the call like i went i was one of the many people and then at some point the police are like, you need to get off the sidewalk. And they're close enough to me. And I'm pretty confident I can outrun this guy. But like, he says, get out the sidewalk. I'm like, cool, let me just get out the sidewalk. I like get out of the street onto the sidewalk. So I periscope that. And then I like fall in like a stampede of people. And I go to get up and I, and I can't get up. And I'm like, well, this is really weird. Like I'm stuck in the stampede. And then I realize it's actually a police officer who's like pushing my shoulders down. Um, and I look up and there's a cameraman right there like it was like the weirdest thing and then i uh, and then i get arrested so i spent the next 17 hours in custody and me and so many people got arrested we eventually sued the baton rouge police department and won which was great um but yeah it was like a long that was a long night so when you felt when you felt this man pushing your shoulders down um and you weren't able to get up what were the thoughts going through your head were you like this is inevitable? Were you, were you shocked or did you panic? No, I think in all the moments I've experienced that like have actually been near death or like these things where I just have no control, um, it become, I get really calm. So I was like pretty calm. I think that's what, you know, some people saw that photo and was like, why wasn't he upset? It's like, well, what was I going to do? You know, mm. like I don't, I'm, in, I'm in zip ties at this point and I clearly can't, I can't run all the things that, people who've never been arrested like want you to do it's like i it's i know it's not gonna matter do you know like if i while out right now while i'm in custody they're gonna beat me and then like say it was justified do you know what i mean so it's like pretty chill i got on the bus they had a bus of people who got arrested hmm. and my zip ties are really loose uh, so the moment i got on the bus i could take the zip ties off like i literally <laughs> could just move them uh, and there were some kids on the bus who had phones so i was able to like take a phone and like call people on the outside and tell them what happened hmm. um so that was helpful 
And am I right in thinking that a couple of days later you were due to meet Obama, the president at the time? Mm-hmm. What was that like? One of the things that's hard about Obama is that people weren't very honest with him. So people would come in the room and they talk a big game outside the room and then they come in and they literally just say thank you. They're like, thank you so much. And you're like, what do you mean thank you? Like, As in they had a whole speech prepared and they had they wanted to hold him to account and then... That all went out the window. Yeah, well, not as soon even as a speech, got... just like the truth. You know, they would like press him because his administration didn't do a ton around policing. You know, they didn't. So we believe that part of like the political process is like the push and pull. And so some of it is like the people on the outside need to push, right? And there were a lot of civil rights leaders who like actually walked into the room and did not push. They were just excited to be in the room. And it made me, you know, I left those meetings like really proud to be a protester because it was the protesters sort of bringing the truth, like and really pushing at every step of the way. And I'm still incredibly proud of them. What was that meeting like? Um, how did Obama respond? He was very Obama. Like, he responded to people. I think he was trying to learn. I think he was trying to listen. It's just hard. And this is where I, like, don't even fault him all that much because, like, his takeaway from the meeting was probably people are pretty chill, right? His takeaway, I could see why his takeaway wouldn't be like, oh, my God, this is a crisis because the room didn't look like a crisis, right? The room was very very measured in a way that was not the reality outside, you know. Um, so you were criticised by fellow activists, including um, in the Black Lives Matter movement, for going to that meeting with Obama. And I guess it highlights a kind of conflict that there is in lots of protest movements between the kind of ideological purity and then the pragmatic reality. Um do you think that those people were right to criticize you for going to the meeting? And what were they what was what was their side of the story? It was this idea that like meeting with the president is really just a PR thing. That like So the they pres- thought nothing would change. Yeah, and I, I think there was like this cynicism uh, around it and, and Trump is a great example that they were wrong, right? That the president actually has a lot of power. The president can do a lot if the president wants to, for better or for worse. Uh, and it's those people now who underestimated the power of the presidency, didn't tell people to vote, told people it didn't matter, and now that people are getting deported and it's like a nightmare in America, uh, they are they are suddenly like, wow, the president matters. And it's like, well, yeah, the president always mattered. I wonder what other movements... I'm thinking of Extinction Rebellion because it's still going on now in London. There are lots of protests and major parts of central London were recently kind of brought to a halt. And I'm wondering what other movements like them can learn from Black Lives Matter as a kind of leaderless protest movement. Yeah, I think that I'm mindful that one of the beauties of the, the movement is that it started with regular people just coming outside. No one, two, three people started it or kept it going. So that's really beautiful. I also think that, you know, civil rights movement was a decade long worth of activism and it took uh, 10 years to get real wins, right? Uh, we're five years since the protests began. So this idea of like keeping it up, you know, like we shut down things in the beginning because we had to, because we tried everything else and people didn't pay attention until we shut things down. You know, we went to the meetings, nobody cared. We called, emailed, people didn't care. We shut down everything. And then everybody's like, let's Suddenly talk. Everybody's right? paying attention. Um, but knowing that like a change in the conversation isn't the same thing as a change in outcomes, right? So how do we make sure that we change the conversation, but also like make sure the structure changes so we don't have to do this again in 10 years, I think is something I'm interested in. And then how do you uh, talk about these issues in ways that anybody can participate? I think what made the protests in America so powerful is that like everybody had space. These issues were all over the country. People understood that they were issues close to them and people were in solidarity. You know, I had never conceived of standing in the street the way I did uh, before I saw people standing in the street. And I was like, oh, we can totally do Like, I had never seen this before in my generation. I read about it. I'd seen movies about protests, but I'd never been in the street myself like that you know so that was your this was your first protest in five yeah and that was like legitimately like a protest you know like what's what is hard now is that 
even the act of resistance has been commodified, right? So there are a lot of people in America who are, who we know well who have never been to a protest without a stage, right? Or like a protest without like a police permit, which is such a bizarre thing to those of us. So like a very organized kind of protest. Yeah, that like the question is like, who are you rebelling against, right? Like I don't even know what it means to protest with a stage. That's like a fascinating thing. Um, so how do you make sure that these things don't get like commodified and uh, and sort of pulled away from the radical spirit that birthed them. I want to talk to you about policing and about what needs to change and how we think about it. You, you say in the book that today's culture of policing simply doesn't match the needs of communities. Yeah, so that if the goal is to have safe communities, we're mindful that the, the safest communities don't have more police, they have more resources, right? So most crime that happens are crimes of addiction and crimes of poverty. So if you want to decrease crime, then like decrease poverty and addiction, like let's do that. I think that for a lot of people, they literally cannot decouple um, safety and policing. That for them, there's like a straight line on the police, make people safe. Safety is requiring police. And the reality is that the best police can do is like get there after the trauma. That's like what policing is. The police get there like after you call 911, after there's a car crash, after somebody's broke in. Mm-hmm. And we want to get to a place where like that, those things actually never happen in the first place, as opposed to just doubling down on the idea that they must happen in mass. And people have an overinflated sense of like what is actually happening in communities. Yeah, this idea that you say, you know, the presence of police doesn't make a place safer and it also doesn't make people feel safer. In fact, it's quite often the opposite. Yeah, it's true. You know, in in America, a third of all the people killed by strangers killed by a police officer. It's a lot of violence by the police happening. And, you know, what they would have you believe is that every single person is like a bank robber or something. And that's just not the case. So I was at your event at Brixton Library last night and I go to book launches and, and literary talks and things all the time and there was something that happened in the room that I've never seen before. Um, every single question was asked by a woman, mm. which I was really struck by. It's, it's extremely rare. And it, and it got me thinking about Black Lives Matter from the outside anyway. It, it looks like it started because of police violence, particularly against men. But I'm interested in your view on what the women's role was at the time when it started and is now in the movement and how that might have changed. I think that what was so beautiful about the beginning of the protest for sure is that it was a coalition of people who probably otherwise would not have worked so seamlessly together. But the threat against us all was just so great that you sort of everybody made it work. Right. So I think about like the trans members of the community who were like present in St. Louis in 2014, out in the street. I think about like the queer people like myself who are on the street, the straight men who are on the street, the straight women and the and women in general who are like out. And, and the work was just so important that people like figured out how to do it. There was a lot of misogyny in the very beginning. What, be, like what kind of thing? Like men would talk over women at the meetings and stuff like that. And like, like there weren't a ton of meetings, but there were enough where like, it's like, why are you talking over her, right? Or like, why did you tell this woman that her, that like she should go home while you stay in the street, right? And what you saw is like women pushed and were like, that's wild. Like, don't say that to me. Other men pushed men being like, that was, that was really homophobic. Don't do that, right? And the stakes were just so high that people like got it, you know? So you saw women, black women, like playing these incredible actions. You saw college students who like were young you know Mm. like lead groups of 3,000 4,000 people and it was like really really powerful to watch and to be a part of so you say in the book in activism I am often asked if I am gay or black first has that changed yeah people don't ask it anymore they sort of say like you know don't get distracted like I need to do the black fight first right because that's like the most important fight and then it'll create space for the other fights like that's sort of the spirit that people say it in and what's your opinion 
I'm like all of the things all at once, right? So there's no way for me to fight about the issues around blackness without understanding how that is impacted by the rest of my identity and that the only way we'll get free is if we like do all those things. And it's actually not a win for me for us to get some great advances with regard to like people of color and then like all the gay people get killed. Like that's like not a win, you know? Like I, I don't win in that scenario yeah, either. Yeah. So in the same way that we talk about like, you know, people will be like, why are you talking about the environment? Like, you're getting distracted. It's like, it's not a win to get everybody to prison and they die because the water has lead in it. Like, that's also not a win. Or die from pollution. Like, not a win, you know? So if you think about what it means to win, we think about it, like, holistically. And also want to remind people that, like, we can actually fight many things at once. So this book, On the Other Side of Freedom, what surprised me about it is I thought it was going to be a manifesto. And actually, it's as much a memoir as anything about your life. This is, like ideas that I want people to use Mm. uh, that are wrapped in essay form and stories, you know? Yeah, and it's very philosophical and it goes right back to your childhood in Baltimore. One of the most moving chapters I found was about your mother. You say that her leaving when you were so young made it hard for you to believe in unconditional love, which was a, a line that really kind of hits home, I think. I wonder, have you grappled with that? that sense over the years and got to the point where you felt like you wanted to write about it, you know, in in a book that's going to be read by lots of people. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm always mindful of all the things that we carry into rooms that we don't name. And one of the things that I carry into, that I used to carry a lot more into all the rooms was this notion of what does it mean to be worthy? And that was because of Joan leaving. Uh, So me writing about it was like my, was the way that I wanted to process it and understand I need to have a conversation with her now that she's read the book and, um, and the book is out. Um, Yes, I'm hoping that we'll have that conversation soon. There was another bit in the book that really struck me. You talk about your childhood and about being sexually abused as a child, and you say, I've largely moved these memories to different places, places harder to access. I wanted to ask, why did you decide to acknowledge these in the book? What what made you want to put these memories, which are painful, into this public place? Yeah, I think that... uh... You know, we all have things that shape and influence who we are. And there was no way for me to write about uh, my identity without talking about being gay. And and that, and part of that story was me like grappling with what the sexual abuse like meant and what it means. Uh, so that was that. I, you know, I think that as activists, as organizers, as citizens, like part of our responsibility to the work is to uh, is to tell full stories about ourselves. So I could have written a book that was like theoretically about the protests and not about myself at all, but. But I show up and all, like, all of me shows up in all of the actions, you know? So do you ever feel like it's necessary to draw a line? Like, is that a tension that you feel? Yeah, I don't always talk about love. Like, that becomes a thing that, like, relationships and stuff I sort of keep close just because, you know, talking about them publicly can be all over the place. But everything else I feel like I've already talked about so publicly already, you know? So it's out there. Yeah, yeah, it's there. Okay, final question. I love my blackness and yours. That's what you say at the end of the author's note. Is your intended reader a black reader? And is that important to you? That's really like a nod to all the people that followed me online. So I, I tweeted that f- like every single night during the protest. It is an acknowledgement too that like black and brown people help build all of the wealth that we know in the world. That without the bodies of black and brown people, there is no wealth. There is no Western world, right? Like it just doesn't exist. So when I say I love my blackness and yours, it's an acknowledgement that like all of us have benefited from the sacrifices of black people. Dre, thank you so much both for your book and for coming on Everything Else. Boom, everything else. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. <laughs> okay, so 
Here at the FT, my colleague India Ross has recently written a brilliant dissection of the TV series Game of Thrones, and I wanted to ask her about that piece. I then also found out, to my surprise, that our boss, Alec Russell, who's the editor of FT Weekend, has very recently discovered the show and has been frantically binge-watching it ever since in the hope of completing it before the finale in a few weeks' time. India and Alec, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Okay, India, so this is this is a big cultural essay on Game of Thrones. Why did you want to write it? Um, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this kind of like new era of TV and how TV came to be such a dominant force in culture today. And this strange kind of show came along uh, that looked on the surface just to be any other kind of typical costume drama, exercise in fantasy. And it's just grown to be this absolutely kind of earth shattering phenomenon. And we just kind of realised that it was so much bigger than TV. And it was the thing that people were talking about culturally right now so uh the final season of game of thrones was coming out and we rather than just approach this like any other show in a review we thought it was worthy of a serious kind of blockbuster essay and so that's what we did and you say in in that piece that depending on how you look at it game of thrones is either a very good tv show or a very bad one um what do you mean exactly okay i spent a lot of time thinking over the course of writing this piece uh pros and cons trying to be balanced And I've reached the conclusion that Game of Thrones is quite terrible by any real artistic metric. The acting is terrible. The dialogue is terrible. It's totally derivative. But the one thing it's good at is it's good at making you watch it. It is an incredibly satisfying viewing experience. The way it's crafted, it's so complicated. There are so many characters. You invest so much time in it. And it's so good at rewarding your labour in watching it that every twist and turn, you are so satisfied by everything that you've invested in it so far that I would say that as entertainment, it's excellent. As art, it's terrible. So you're you're kind of enjoying it despite your better judgment, as yes. it were. And I really try to go into it with an open mind, um, but I do think it's a load of rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> um, Alec, you've been watching it for a few weeks very intensively. Do you think it's a load of rubbish? Well, I think I think India is being far too high-minded on this, actually. <laughs> and I suspect I suspect secretly she knows there is more to it than this. So intensively is an understatement to what I've been doing in the last two weeks. I have become probably the most absorbed Game of Thrones watcher in the last fortnight that there is in London, maybe on the on the planet. I've been watching an average of probably two and a half to three episodes every day. And this came about (laughs) partly because, well, primarily because of India's piece, which I I can claim a hand in because I remember about a year ago saying, why don't we write more about Game of Thrones? All our readers, subscribers, or many of them will be watching this. There must be a way of writing about it for an FT audience that doesn't just seem sort of tabloid and and poppy and India delivered this amazing piece when it came out it was a great piece amazing and I thought I know but I haven't watched any of it (laughs) so I set myself a challenge which was to just just tear through it uh did you realize there were eight seasons before you started the challenge good question (laughs) answer no and nor did my wife who i inveigled into watching it with me to the complete bewilderment of the rest of our family she's more like india in as much as she takes a very high-minded view of kind of all this all the kind of violence gore endless nudity and and our family most members of our family said including our two sons they said this is the absolute antithesis of what she might be expected to watch they didn't say that of me (laughs) (laughs) And so, India, 
your piece is also about the sort of wider significance of Game of Thrones. Basically, why should someone who's never watched it before care about it? What What is the reason? Do you I think? mean, it's really interesting because I guess the point of the piece was to try and account for the scale of this phenomenon, which, I mean, I think we can safely say it's the biggest pop cultural phenomenon in 2019. And one of the biggest ever, I would say. I mean, I, think we, I was trying to sort of think back to equivalent things of equivalent scale and hype and to be honest since Harry Potter I can barely think of anything and I think so the idea was to kind of figure out why why this is and I think it's sort of what I concluded is is that it's it's something kind of bigger than the show it's it's this idea of you know when we when we're in this kind of landscape of individualized consumption of culture the st- streaming era everyone's alone on their laptop and these these sort of big events television events cultural events uh that everyone experiences together are kind of thing of the past and I think we feel a kind of nostalgia for that and I think Game of Thrones is an exercise in reclaiming a sense of consuming things collectively and I think that's why people start watching and perhaps this applies to you Alec I don't know is it is a sense of you're you're kind of either you're in or you're out and there's this club and this conversation and it's so fun to be in the conversation Mm, and that's that's why though I think Game of Thrones is a load of rubbish I love it because it's really just a vehicle for me to access this space and it's it's so much fun. And your piece opens with you walking into a pub Yes, and finding Game of Thrones being watched by lots of people. And I went back to that pub on Monday, and it was still extremely rowdy. So and Monday night people, for them is like Game of Thrones. Monday night, night is Game of Thrones night. People were throwing their beers around and <laughs> screaming at the screen. It was great. I think one of the reasons that it is so compelling for so many people uh, is that it is a uh, a brilliant take on power politics uh, and on Machiavellian politics. So in an age, in a very political age, where so many people are obsessed with the Trumpian world, with the kind of politics over Brexit and all sorts of other stuff, including, for example, say, you know, uh, Xi's Politburo in, in, in China. This is the most extraordinary insight into the kind of backstabbing world, the literally backstabbing in some cases, world of, <laughs> of politics. And I think it is, it, it, it does go beyond dragons and gore and sex. I agree. I know it's it's true, it does. And, it, and the, the the sheer scale of it and the sort of project of mapping out this plot with so many characters over so many seasons is a, an amazing achievement. And the, the sort of comings and goings and the machinations of their, as you say, like political world is, is really impressive. I mean, it is a feat of narrative and, yeah. Okay, and finally, um, what are the excitement levels in the room for the finale? And Alec, will you have made it through the whole thing before, you, before the finale? You've got three weeks. Three weeks. This is a this is a serious problem because I have an enforced four nights away from it, which means that the the final rate of watching to meet that deadline is going to be insane. Uh, so I've got a problem to meet that deadline, but I'll do my best. You're going to have to stay away from the internet if you don't make the deadline. I've got quite good at avoiding Game of Thrones headline stuff. I just kind of tune out, see Game of Thrones, look the other way. Well, I'm excited. Great. Well, thank you both for coming in. Great to be on the podcast. Thank you. That's it for this week. You can read India's piece on Game of Thrones and all of our TV coverage at FT.com. I'll be back in two weeks' time with the journalist and documentary maker, John Ronson, to talk about, amongst other things, his brilliant new podcast, The Last Days of August, which delves into a death in California's porn industry. Thank you so much to everyone who's been in touch recently about our episode on Sheila Hetty. We'd love to hear from you. You can email the show at everythingelse at FT.com. 
and you can find me on Twitter or Instagram. If you like what you hear, please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners to discover the show. Everything Else is produced by David Waters and presented by me, Griselda Murray-Brown, and our music is by Fatum. Fatum.